This morning, I want to show you two pictures. The two pictures represent two ways to look at relating to God. You could say they are two different theologies. You could say they are two different thoughts about how to relate to God. One at the beginning of the message, one at the end. Here's the beginning picture. Maybe you saw this picture this week. This is former President Jimmy Carter, now 98 years old, on the front porch of the house where he's lived after his presidency, the $167,000 ranch property in Plains, Georgia. He's on the porch with a guitar, as you can see. He planted 15 acres of Palawania trees on his farm. And he's in very keenly sensitive to sustainability. He put the first solar panels on the White House back in the late 70s. The reason he likes the Palawania trees is because they take about, after you plant them, 12 to 15 years to mature. At maturity, you cut them down. And from the stump will arise another tree for at least five times, sometimes seven times, the tree comes back and takes off. He likes that. So he planted them, they grew, he harvested them, and then he hired what is called a luthier. luthier. Now a luthier takes wood, and it's a fine craftsman, and makes stringed instruments. And he hired a particularly adroit craftsman named Jason Costell, to make that guitar. And then out of those trees, several other stringed instruments were made. And he has the standing invitation that anyone who buys one can come to his house and serenade he and Rosalind at playing on those instruments made from those trees that he had made. Now, my question to you in thinking of that picture, maybe we could look at the picture just one more time. Here's my question. Is that a picture of what the New Testament describes as God's work for us in Christ? Remember I told you the two pictures are two different ways to think about salvation and the message of salvation? Is salvation us working or is it God working or is it a combination? Jimmy bought the trees. He planted them. God grew them for 15 years. Jimmy harvested them. And in cooperation from others, he came to the guitar. Is that the picture? By the way, this is the picture that the false teachers are hanging up in the church at Galatia and saying, this is the way to God. Let me explain. Come to Galatians chapter 5 and verses 1 through 6. Galatians 5, 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul is facing this bad theological picture that has been painted and hung up in the church in Galatia. It's disturbing to Paul because it's distorting the gospel. It is saying, Jesus, yes, plus circumcision. Now, I, I thought this week, 
Um, I probably said the word circumcision enough going through Galatians to get to the point where one becomes so saturated that they just run out and say, I'm not coming back till he quits staying the C word. I've, I've, I've had all that I can take. If you'll have patience for one more message, he actually turns the corner in chapter 5 and verse 12. And I'm going to show you where he goes beginning this morning. And you, he gets his cue from, we can get his cue from verse 6. But if you'll let me talk one more message about it, then Paul turns and we'll talk about something else, which is what true gospel living looks like. That's the rest of chapter 5 and the rest of chapter 6. Let me read it to you this morning. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. For freedom, Galatians 5, 1 to 6, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You, who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, I want to go two different directions with two major points this morning. First, let's watch Paul be clear on the message of salvation. That's what he's doing in these six verses. And secondly, then, how ought we to live? Why does this matter? First, let's consider the Apostle Paul's focus, clarity on God's great salvation. If you step back away from these words and these first six verses and note, he's making three assertions. Let's note them together. Assertion number one, there is a religion of man and a gospel of God. You say, Eric, where did you get that phrase, gospel of God? I got it from Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. I love it. The good news of God. If I'm going to get somebody's news, I mean, what do we want? The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Cincinnati Enquirer. How about the news of God, the gospel of God? And the gospel of God is a distinct and unique message. And the gospel of God is not the religion of man. And the religion of man has taken over. That is, relate to God by human effort in this city and region, it was through circumcision. Now, in the religion of man, man is at the center. And his effort is the clincher, the linchpin. Because we're Adam's children and we're proud, we want credit for everything. We want to be noticed. Uh, we want to earn it. But when it comes to relating to God, we are in no position to be noticed by God. In fact, we bring no merit to God. We only bring the demerit of our sinfulness. 
And so he's contrasting the religion of man and that the religion of man has a central hymn. I did it my way. I relate to God uh, through what I do. Uh, in this situation in Galatia, they said, well, yeah, little Jesus won't hurt you, but I'll tell you what, you want to come in, Gentiles, the way to come in is through circumcision. Be circumcised. The central thesis is, well, you know what, I forged my relationship with God on my terms. Now, one of the things that's very clear in the Bible is that we do not come to God on our terms. The only terms we have is sin. And what's glorious is he comes to us on his terms, his holiness, and yet his grace and his reach for us. There are many versions of this religion of man that have been in history. This first century edition was the Galatians. Well, it's about human effort. Well, what kind of human effort? Go off and get circumcised, then you'll be in good shape before God. But the gospel of God is not the story of what we do for God, but what God has done for us in Christ. The effort that acts is accented, and it's what makes the gospel incredible. It's not our effort, go off and be circumcised, or go off and obey, or be a good husband. And I'm for very much being a good husband, and take little ladies across the street and get your neighbor's mail and watch their dog when they're gone on vacation. All those things are good. None of those things accrue for us any merit that makes us acceptable before God. The effort that is accented in salvation, the gospel of God, is the effort, not of us, but of God. It is his effort. Now, through the years I've had some fun, especially with our boys and our son-in-law going to an athletic event, you know, back when we used to do that. I know uh, in COVID, nobody does that, you know. But uh, I remember we went to a big-time college football game. Ohio State, highly ranked, was playing Oklahoma, highly ranked. And I messed with Dave Stockman, who he and his wife graduated from Oklahoma, you know, before the game. And I won. well, it ended up Ohio State lost. It was a big mess. It, we had such a wonderful weekend right at the end of the game. You know, they beat him, but it was still fun to be there. But it's interesting to assemble in the stadium on a big game like that. You can watch people come down the street, and you can tell who they are associated with. They'll put on all the regalia. Here they came from Norman to Columbus, Ohio, all those Sooners. And they were there, and they were mixing it up with all those Buckeyes, which just is a sea of red, over 100,000 of them. And I think they gave, you know, Oklahoma 2,000 tickets uh, or something like that. But anyway... You could tell who was whom based upon what they were identifying with. Well, Paul is saying you can tell who is whom when it comes to God by what they're identifying with. Because some are putting on the sweater of, hey, I got circumcised. I'm in. I did it. And others are putting on the sweater exclusively. It only has one thing on the sweater. It's in Christ alone. That's all that's there. And they are, by their identification, noting that it is their association uniquely and singularly with Jesus that is fueling their hope. Dissimilar to those who are wearing the merit badge of, I got baptized, or I made a profession of faith, or I read through the Bible last year, or um, 
I got circumcised, as is in the case of first century. There is a religion of man, and there is a gospel of God. Second assertion is, do-it-yourself salvation projects are destined to fail. Look at verse 3 and look at verse 4. Here's Paul's reasoning. If you start down that DIY save-yourself road, you must go all the way. Don't just cherry-pick the low-hanging fruit, look back in the law and say, yeah, I'm going to take circumcision out of there, but leave the rest of it there. I'll, I'll take circumcision out. And Paul says, oh, no. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be to no advantage. I testify to every man, verse 3, who accepts circumcision, he's obligated to keep the whole law. Gamaliel II in the first century wrote, only he, a Jewish rabbi, teacher, only he who keeps all these requirements will live, not he who keeps only one of them. There they were, trusting in what they were doing. And Paul says, oh, no, you don't get to do one thing and say, well, got that all taken care of. No, you keep, you, 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 it's take one, take all, keep the whole law. When it comes to thinking about God and relating to him and salvation, clearly it's a binary choice. By that I mean it's either or. It's one thing or the other. It cannot be both. It is either we relate to God by the law, and if we're going to be involved in this do-it-yourself, self-righteousness, salvation project, Paul says you got to go all the way. You DIY guys in Galatia, go all the way. But if you're going to go with grace, you go all the way to grace. His point is to go down the law road is to go away from grace. Look at verse 4. You are severed from Christ. By the way, whatever gesture is severing us from Christ, we need immediately to stop and figure out what's going on. We do not want to be severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. I don't want to be trending away from grace. I want to be trending toward grace. I want to be in grace. I want to live in Graceland, and I want you to live there for all of your days in walking with our Lord. Do-it-yourself salvation projects are destined to fail. The law and do-it-yourself is going this way. Grace is going this way. And Christ is asking us, are you going my way? What we get in Jesus, John 1.16, is grace upon grace. You have fallen away from grace, 5.4. To come to Christ is to come to grace. To get circumcised is to go away from grace. Now we need to stop and just ask historically, how'd they ever get onto circumcision? Why would they have, why would they have identified that? At one point in Israel's history, about 700 years before Jesus came, God used the nation of Babylon to discipline Israel and carry them off into exile, and Jerusalem was utterly destroyed. While they were in Babylon for 70 years, something started that wasn't around before then, and it was the synagogue, the teaching center. They thought to themselves, and it's a thought we need to think in our generation, if we don't teach our kids about the living God here in Babylon, there is going to be no Judaism in the future. So they set up these teaching centers called synagogues. 
as they had these synagogues and met as Jewish people in exile, some Babylonians began to look in the window of the synagogue. And they said, hey, we like what we hear. But we're not Jewish. What about us? Can we come to the synagogue? Man, it threw the rabbis into a frenzy. What? A Gentile in the synagogue? These pagans want to join us? What are we going to do? What do we do? They put their heads together. By the way, they came up with two things. One, they said, okay, Babylonian pagan who say you believe in God and want to own the covenant promises of Abraham, looking forward to a Messiah, then here's the deal. Show that you own the promises. All men have to be circumcised. The second thing they did, and this becomes the genesis of Christian baptism, um, remember the church is born in Jewish Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost? Remember there are Gentiles, non-Jewish people who want to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior? Well, God intended all along to have baptism, but Christian baptism, that's what happens when Peter says, they said, what must we do to escape the wrath of God poured out against our sin? And Peter said, repent of your sin, all of you, and each one of you who do repent, Acts 2.38, be baptized. You say, well, where did Christian baptism came from? It actually came from back to Babylon during the exile. Because as they were looking in saying, hey, we, we're Gentile, we're, we're Babylonian, we're not Jewish, we don't have any of Abraham's blood, can we be a part of you? They said, okay, you can never go back to your womb, we can't redo the gene pool, but here's the deal, why don't you be baptized? You come down here, and in the synagogues, there was a baptistry where they practiced baptism by immersion. And the person would come and say, I'm Bob the Babylonian. This is who I've always been. And he comes down into the tank. And the rabbi would say, okay, Bob the Babylonian, you're dead. We're going to bury you. So they would bury Bob the Babylonian. Then they'd raise him up and say, hey, you're now Bob the Jew. You are Jewish. Your old life of non-Jewish. And so that became, it's called proselyte baptism. So then the Jewish community, they knew of baptism. That's what was so disturbing about John the Baptist who starts baptizing people. Because it's like, hey, wait a minute. Baptism is for people who are outside to come inside. I thought we were insiders because they didn't realize they needed Jesus to be inside. And so Christian baptism grows out of this, and everybody clearly understood what it is. It's an identification with, this is who I was before I met Jesus. We will experience, I believe, Christian baptism in two weeks. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and we, we will, and, and you'll listen as, uh, Jason, are you doing that, I believe? You'll listen to Jason, and, and he'll even say it right at the end. Uh, the, his phrase that he uses. But here is, uh, this is who I was before I came to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Then that person has died. I'm burying that person. That person's gone. But who is raised up now in newness of life, listen for that phrase that Jason even characteristically uses in baptism, raised in newness of life. I'm raised up now. And in doing so, even the posture of immersion, which is why we practice biblical baptism by immersion, which is the scriptural mode, is I'm identifying with the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
But I'm also imaging the fact that God has called me to put to death my old life. That's not who I am anymore. I'm burying that person. And I'm raised up new in Christ. No longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. So why in Galatia did they stumble upon, what are we going to do with these Gentiles? Here you have Jewish Christians and then Gentile believers they come to place their faith in Christ and they want to join the church and the Jewish Christians who are guardians of the law of God and Moses that came 430 years after the promise. Think of the whole argument of Galatians. They said, what do we do? What do we do? Okay, here's what we'll do. We will have them be circumcised. That's what it will. So we'll tell them salvation is faith in Jesus plus you do this, be circumcised. And so that's how they got there and how they had this problem. But do-it-yourself projects are destined to feel. The third assertion is this. If we are saving ourselves, we don't need Christ. Look at verse 2. Christ is of no advantage. If you are trusting in what you are doing yourself to save yourself, Christ is of no advantage. Verse 4. You are severed from Christ. You see, this is when addition, oh yeah, faith plus works, circumcision, baptism, involvement in the sacraments, whatever. This is when addition becomes subtraction. Because Paul says, if you are going to add that, what you are fundamentally doing is subtracting Jesus Christ. You're taking him out of the equation. You are then severed from Christ. Since Jesus Christ is our Savior, and the only way to God, as he claims about himself, Whatever it means to be severed from Christ, we don't want to know. And we want to stay as far away from being severed from Christ. By the way, very artfully, Paul is messing with them because he uses a term for being cut away, severed, in the midst of this discussion about circumcision. And it's even going to get more in indelicate next week when he tells them, why don't you just mutilate your whole self if you're really into that, you know, and really getting in their face before he turns and talks about it. Living by faith with the inner compulsion of the Spirit of God at work bringing us to love, that's where he's going. That's how the epistle ends. But he's saying let's not be severed away from Christ. Let's get completely away from everything that's taking us away from Christ. Do you realize that we can create a false gospel that doesn't take us to Christ, but takes us away? If we could save ourselves, God was a fool to send Christ to the cross to save us. If Christ is the only way to God, we are fools to add anything to him. Now that's the conceptual thought of the gospel. Now, how should we then live? Why does this matter? How does this matter? Three deductions that shape our life and thought. Number one, if we add anything to Christ, we lose Christ. Look at verse two. Look at verse four. The question is, and this is what Paul asked them, do we need Christ or not? Is he the only way or not? Is he the savior or are we? I have a friend who's a business consultant. He coaches corporations. He's very shrewd and very good. And um, he was working with a company that he had been with for several years. And um, 
He watched what they did. He made his recommendations. He came around them. And he offered the first set of recommendations and watched what they did. Nothing. So he came around with another moment of consultation and laid out the strategic initiatives they should be involved in and watched, and they did nothing. I was with him over lunch one day, and I said, Hey, just curious, George. Uh, hey, what'd you do this morning? I wrote a letter. Did you? Who'd you write a letter to? A company. What'd you say in the letter? <laughs> he said, he told me this story. He wrote this letter. Dear company, enclosed, it went something like this. Enclosed, you will find a check. For the retainer that you have paid me as your consultant the last few years. Sidebar was not a small number. Back to the letter. It is clear to me that you believe you are operating your company at an optimal level in no need of the counsel that I have offered to you for all of the counsel I have offered to you in whole and in part has not been heeded. Therefore, I shall not waste your money being of no effect to you because you are doing it the way you want to do it. Farewell, have a good life, your dear friend, so-and-so. Um, what do you think of what he did? That's what Paul does in Galatians. Dear Galatians, you don't need Jesus, apparently. You're doing fine your own way, making that up how to relate to God. So, I want to remind you that if you're going to relate to God in those ways, you are severing yourself away from Christ. You don't need him. If we add anything to Christ, we lose Christ. Just as my friend told him, you're not using me. I'm of no use to you then. In the same way, when we add anything to Christ, why? Why would we add to a sufficient Savior who settled it all in one fell swoop in his coming, his death and his resurrection? Secondly, we do not work for righteousness. Did you notice this? It's a curious phrase. Verse 5, we wait for righteousness. Now, we know that the gospel promises when we believe in Christ, when we receive Christ as our Savior, let me just stop and ask you, have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior? These are the words of Jesus, except a man, except a woman, except a boy, except a girl, be born again, they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I want you to enter the kingdom of heaven. I want you to come to hope. And there's one door, and it's Jesus have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Has God brought you here online this morning to awaken you to the fact that you need Christ? He could not be more available to you this morning and today. Are you here in person? And God's been plowing up your heart. And he's brought you here as January ends in this new year to begin a relationship with him. How we'd love to be next to you.
But notice, when we believe in Christ, the nature of Jesus is imputed to our record. Remember that old phrase, I saw the dead, small, and great stand before God, and the books were open. There's a book. Our name's in the book. And there's a ledger. And when we believe in Jesus Christ into that ledger, and it's an accountant. Accountants really get this. It is reckoned to us as righteousness. It's imputed righteousness. It's the gift of a righteous standing that we are given in the gospel. So that when God gets to that page with your name on it, he looks and it doesn't show after we believe in Jesus what it could show about our numerous offenses breaking the law of God through time. It just is Jesus and his perfect righteousness, he who was without sin. And he tells us in verse 5, when we believe the gospel, we then wait for righteousness. Righteousness is not something we work for. I'm going to be circumcised and I'm going to obey get my neighbor's mail, take the little lady across, be faithful at work. All those things are good and responsibility is great, but that is not how we earn it. It's given as a free gift with need of nothing to be added. Now, 1 John 3, 2 says, when Jesus Christ comes again, we will see him and then be like him. Until we get there, we are not like him. We are sinful. And every honest soul says, boy, that's the truth. We feel the presence of indwelling sin. We feel the ongoing tug of temptation. We fall. We need repentance. And what we are waiting for in the gospel is we are waiting for a perfect righteousness. Have you not had insight into what Paul says when he puts up his hands in Romans 7 and he says, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Someday I won't have this tug toward gravitational pull away from God and unto indulgence. Someday that'll be gone. Someday I'll have no more temptation. And so as Luther said, Martin Luther, the reformer, we are righteous positionally in Christ, imputed while still a sinner. What an irony. We could not be any more righteous before God. And we look at ourselves in the mirror and say, who, me? Are you kidding me? I know my own heart. I know my mind. I know my thoughts. I know my flesh. I need grace. And we get it in Jesus Christ. All that we need. We don't work for righteousness. We wait for righteousness. That helps us work through the pain in the presence of indwelling sin. Someday the struggle will end. We wait and hope for the realization of true righteousness. Finally, gospel people live under the internal compulsion of love, not the external compulsion of law. Look at verse 6, and this is what he's going to expand upon for the rest of the epistle. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's not, all right, who's circumcised? Because all of you are all right. That's not it. But only faith working through love. Who has genuinely believed in Christ and it shows up in how they live their life? Let's just use one summary word for what that looks like. It's love. By the way, did you know it's a trilogy here? Faith, hope, and love. Gospel people live under the internal compulsion of love, not the external compulsion of law. Wherever the Hubble telescope is this morning, 
in the Milky Way, it's traversing along a path that is being moved by its internal gyroscope. And it is moving it forward in the very path that it ought to go. Now, that's different than any external force that's pressing upon it. No, it's an internal force that's moving it. The gyroscope is moving the Hubble telescope. Let's think of that. We're all slave rowers in the galley of a ship. And the master's walking down the aisle. Whoosh, whoosh, and he's cracking that whip. Row, row. And he's calling it out. And he's cracking from exterior pressure we keep rowing until we are tired the law is like the evil master in that center aisle cracking the whip saying row 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 take that take that row the ship that's external pressure to move you to act Paul's saying no That's not the work of God. That's the law of God. Because what moves the follower of Jesus in the gospel is the internal compulsion of what God has done by the Spirit as we put our faith in the promise and it moves us ahead. Not external pressure. Do this, do that. Don't do this, don't do that. But internal compulsion out of gratitude. I'm going to offer my life unto the Lord. Now let me show you the second picture. Here's a picture of the way to God. By the way, how many of you have been to Crater Lake in Oregon? Not very many. We ought to take a trip out there. We'll stay away from Portland, but we'll try to get to Crater Lake. Look at Crater Lake. You look at this. Nobody goes to Crater Lake and says, I'll tell you what. Those guys running that heavy equipment really did the job here. No, those, those, those deep earth landscapers, they really designed quite a good thing here. I'll tell you, man, they've really put it together all those years, all that work. Man, they're geniuses. Where is the marquee that has all their names on there? No, you go there and you stare at that. And any person in their right mind says, God is incredible. He did this. No man did that. He did this. Paul is putting up a picture, Crater Lake, and he's taking down a picture, Jimmy Carter there with his guitar. And he's telling those dear ones in Galatia and telling us here this morning that our hope is found in Christ alone who gets all the glory as his grace moves into our life, takes us to Graceland, And we are never the same. What pictures in your heart? What pictures in your mind? Glory to God for all that he has given in his son Jesus. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ our Lord. Who alone and singularly is our hope. We revel in him. We love him. We need him. Forgive us for trusting in anything other than him 
for our hope. We close setting him before us, the exalted one. To God be the glory, great things you have done in Jesus our Lord.